Welcome to Basecamp, where men join together to seek deeper understanding of authentic menhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. If you're looking for the next level in men's ministry, join us and experience a life of Christian fellowship with men sold out for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May God be praised. We're now on Ephesus part two, although it really, most of it doesn't take place in Ephesus. Uh, so we're at the end of the third missionary journey. And Paul knows that things are winding down in a way that from a human standpoint, probably won't be a lot of fun. We find, we find out, we in the audience find out more about that as the chapters, uh, chapter and a half unfold. But for Paul, I think, I think he knew where he was headed. Well, he definitely knew where he was headed. Because even, even at this point, he knew that God had put it on his heart to end up in Rome. And I think he suspected that that wouldn't be necessarily voluntarily. And that he might want a different tailor since he would be wearing chains. So the chapter starts in Ephesus after the riot. So, you know, wherever Paul is, there's a lot going on, and it's usually tumultuous. And this is no, uh, no different. But you'll see the city Troas up there. I'm not supposed to turn around, but I'll trust you. Um, so, see that city Troas. So, Paul goes there, heads for there initially, but then he, heads, he goes for Mas- to Macedonia. It's a wide open door for ministry. So, that's obviously where he's supposed to be. But he leaves. Why is that? Because Titus is not there. And Paul's concern for one man overrides this open door for ministry, and he goes to Macedonia to make sure Titus is okay. So it's something for us to bear in mind as we, you know, walk through our ministries that sometimes the one outweighs the 99, and we need to be sensitive to God's leading in that. And that the men with whom we work, the men in whom we've invested, are critically important to God, and they need to be critically important to us. So Paul found him, everything was fine. Paul goes down into uh, Greece and Achaia for three months, probably stays in Corinth, as I put in your notes, because a lot of things going on there, because Paul's time in Corinth in this period is critical. So think about the the, uh, scriptures that come out of that time. The book of Romans, that seems important. Um, and the issues identified in First and Second Corinthians are all dealt with in this period. So we sort of, you know, move quickly past it uh, when we read it in the book of Acts. But, but what God was doing in and through this man uh, changes our lives even today. So remember that Paul talks about in Second Corinthians about gathering the offering for the churches in Judea. He probably was doing that, and his intent was to sail, most likely, and this is thanks to John Stott's analysis in uh, this book here, which I would commend to you if you really want to get into the book of Acts. Um, Probably intend uh, that Paul intends to sail to Syria to take the offering back to Jerusalem. But he's going with Passover pilgrims. Passover pilgrims are Jews. Jews aren't necessarily Paul's biggest fans. And anybody who's served on an aircraft carrier or been on an aircraft carrier, you know that awfully easy to end up on the fan tail and on the smoking deck and whoop, 
There goes somebody into the drink. Oh, well, never saw him. So uh, apparently the Holy Spirit warned him. So he decides instead of, for OPSEC reasons, he didn't call it that, for OPSEC reasons, to uh, walk. So he heads overland back to Philippi and then to Troas again. Now Troas is significant because it's the first time recorded in Scripture that we can definitely say believers worshiped on a Sunday. So we still today uh, live with, benefit from, the tradition that they established. And it was centered around the Word and the sacrament of communion. Uh, Now, the other thing, and this I guarantee you remember whether you've read Acts 20 recently or not, Eutychus. So who's Eutychus? Eutychus is each one of us. How many of us have slept, oh, I'm sorry, listened to a pastor, not necessarily here, but some pastor somewhere, and you fell asleep. So this is the prototype of it, but we can't necessarily count on what became available to Eutychus, because remember, he was in this third floor window. It's late at night. Paul's been talking probably for four or five hours. I'm not saying anything uh, about current worship practices, current practices. Marty does not talk for four to five hours, and that's good. And this is why, because of Eutychus. So Eutychus falls asleep and falls out the window. Three floors, he's dead. It's not that, you know, he was injured, but Paul discovers, no, he's, he's really still alive. He, he was dead. Uh, you know, it's like in Princess Bride. He's dead, dead, really dead. Um, But Paul resurrects him. God uses Paul to resurrect him. And then Paul, because this is really momentous, oh, by the way, this guy just came back to life after being dead. They decide to have a big celebration and and, uh, this is a big deal and we're gonna stop everything and celebrate what happened. No, he just goes back inside and starts preaching again. Just just life with Christ. Um, And... That's the way it should be, really. You know, yeah, we don't see people raised from the dead every, every time, but, but a lot of times, probably, I am amazed at what God does when it's just what God does. God is a God of doing amazing things, and it's not really very surprising that he does them, but I still get surprised. So Paul, as he sees each group here, and we'll see this specifically when he talks to the Ephesian elders, he probably realizes for many of them, probably most of them, he will never see them again in this life. So he lives with that, and finally it comes out when he uh, meets with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, which is the next slide. And when they came to him, because what's happening is Paul sails now he's, gotten, he's uh, proceeded on land and then sailed across the Mediterranean. Well, we would see it in the map if I still had the map up there, but I don't. Um, sailed across in the Mediterranean to the city of Miletus. They coast along the coast of what's now Turkey and end up in the city of Miletus, passing Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and uh, he's just come from there with this big riot and everything. But he chooses not to stop there because he knows that if he does, um, he'll he can't get away quickly because he, so many people know him and love him there. So instead, he goes to Miletus and he calls the leaders of the church. 
the Ephesian elders to him there. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you all the time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, because it's the province of Asia. Ephesus is the capital. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which befell me through the plots of the Jews. I thought that was interesting because this huge riot that you know conceivably could have ended with uh, a severe Roman repression of the crowd in Ephesus. And Paul still says the things that really bothered him were the plots of the Jews. So, uh, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And we'll come back to that uh, in a couple slides. And teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody think Paul's boastful? You don't have to raise your hand. But I suspect that many of you, like I, have read through some of the things that Paul's write, Paul writes, like this one, serving the Lord with all humility and tears. Really? You're talking about yourself that way? You're focusing on yourself? Like in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Hmm, he seems to draw attention to himself quite a bit. Well, why is that? A large part of it was credibility. Paul had to keep representing his credentials as an apostle and as a minister to specific groups of people to remind him because he was continually under attack. Even among the uh, church in Jerusalem because he wasn't one of the original 12. So he had to keep reaffirming apostolic status. Was it because his ego was huge and inflated? Maybe back when he first came to Christ, maybe that was the case. I'm sure it wasn't by this point. It was just he had to tell people whom Christ had made him because he spoke with authority. And that authority didn't come from him. It came from God. And this is the evidence, the evidence of my life, that this is from God, not from me. Now, that word shrink, uh, the Greek word hypostello, to draw back or to let down. It's to, and probably if you've taught, and I know it's happened to me as well, that I really don't want to talk about that very much. So say I'm doing a large group and I'm doing Romans 1, and we get toward the end of Romans 1, and it's the discussion of same-sex relationships. Today's climate, really don't want to cover that part. Not an option. Not an option. I have to, if, if I, if you, are teachers of the word, we have to cover, and Marty does this excellently, we have to cover everything the word says. So we can't just snip out parts and teach what we want. We have to cover what the word says, give people the whole message of God. And as I'll cover again, God holds us responsible in a very specific and frankly scary way for doing that. So repentance to God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I was talking about this at our home group last night. So. For me, when I present the gospel, talk with people about the gospel, repentance to God, 
love of God. In my discussion, repentance to God? Maybe. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Love of God. Because people want to hear about the love of God. But according to this, they also need to hear about the repentance of God. It's something that, that Derek does really well, and he stressed it to us before, I think during this semester. The gospel message has to include the holiness of God that we have offended. It has to include the fact that we are sinners. It's not just that God loves us. Yes, he does. And that leads him to send Christ for us. Why did he have to send Christ for us? Because we were sinners. And if we don't have that in the gospel, people end up turning to an incomplete Savior. So one of the things that came out of this passage for me was that I need to make sure that that is part of my gospel presentation or gospel discussion. Um, Just looking back at teaching in public and from house to house. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, he does all things, he tries to be all things to all men that he might by all means save some. He recognizes not everybody's going to be saved. Christ says that too in Matthew 7. But for Paul, the critical difference was the gospel. If Paul had to look like a Gentile, he wouldn't sacrifice critical principles, but he'd look as much like a Gentile as he could. If Paul had to look like a Jew, fine, I'll look like a Jew. I don't care. What I care about is you hearing the gospel and turning to Christ. For him, everything was secondary to that. And that probably needs to be more true of me. It's not what people think of, it should not be, it is, should not be what people think of me or how I want um, them to regard me or my church. It's their desperate need for a savior. Okay, in Acts 20, 22 to 25, and now behold, I, this is Paul talking to the elders, I'm going to Jerusalem bound in the spirit, curious words, not knowing what shall befall me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, and we talked about this previously, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may accomplish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all among you all you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. (coughs) Excuse me. That word bound means fastened with chains. It's not a word we think of in how God relates to us. But that's exactly how Paul saw it. He was bound. It was like he was headed toward Jerusalem knowing he was going to, he didn't know what he would suffer, but he knew he would suffer. And he didn't know where he'd be in prison necessarily, but he knew he would be imprisoned because God had already told him that. But it's like he's being pulled in by a chain pulled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is drawing him there and he will not say no. So whatever's required, he will follow. His life mattered to Paul only so that he could finish his course. That word course is a 
word uh, dromos, which I think is where we get the words dromedary and hippodrome, things like that. It's a running, it's a race. It's the same word Paul uses in 2 Timothy 4 when he says, I finished the race. So same idea. I have that, the course that's laid out for me and I can see the finish line and I'm headed toward it and by the grace of God, nothing is going to keep me from crossing that line and the sooner the better. From Paul's standpoint, soon is good. (coughs) Excuse me. Less suffering, but I'll stay there as long as I have to to accomplish the mission that God has given me. And the mission is everything. I can get, and that brings me to another point, and this is a little bit sensitive, um, but nonetheless true. I can get so caught up in this life (coughs) that I tried to hold on too hard. I must hold my life here with light fingers. Physical death is neither the end nor the worst thing that will ever happen to me. It's not. Matter of fact, in some ways, it's the best thing because it promotes me to the next stage of life. I hope and I pray I remember that, but, and I hope and pray that you do as well. And we say that and we, we want to think, yes, that's true for me, but is it true for in how I think about my grandmother, my spouse? It gets a lot harder for us when, when those things, when it's somebody else that we care deeply about, but it's still nonetheless true. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for them, we don't earnestly seek God for their, the saving of their lives, the relieving of their suffering. But we also recognize that I gotta hold on to this life lightly because this is just a tiny fraction of an eternity with Christ. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Take heed to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Teachers are gravely accountable to God. Ezekiel 3, verses 18 and 19. If I say to the wicked, he's God speaking to Ezekiel, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning. You, Ezekiel, give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity. It's his fault. He did it but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you will have saved your life. Does this mean that if I don't share the gospel with someone and they die, it's on me? That they weren't saved because I didn't share with them? No. In my opinion, no. That's absolutely untrue. 
that attributes far too much to me and says to God that this person that you had intended for eternal life was prevented from getting there because of me. No, God will bring home all whom he has chosen. But God does hold me as a teacher, and James says this too, you know, we who teach are held to higher standards. He holds us and each one of you when you're in a teaching capacity responsible to some degree, to greater, greater or lesser degree, for being faithful to present his word to those to whom we teach. So I need to bear that in mind and not take it casually. And I'm, as we've talked before, I'm responsible to teach the whole counsel of God. Uh, the reference there in 2 Timothy is where people talk about tickling ears. People accumulate for themselves teachers to tickle their ears, do things that, uh, teach them things that they want to hear. Well, as teachers, and probably those of you, those of you who taught, it's probably most of you actually, are responsible to teach them what the word says, not what they want to hear. Leaders must take care of and monitor, them, monitor themselves. One of the most chilling things in this passage is, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things. We need to be careful, and this is especially true of elders. That's why they're here, to prevent this from happening. And that's why they are not just one of them. It's a group of them because they watch, not watch, they, they encourage and guard one another as well as all of us. So we need to be faithful to pray for them because they are the ones who keep this from happening. God uses to keep this from happening. To draw away the disciples after them. Be very wary, very wary of anyone who tries to lead you, us, or people you care about uh, in a path of division. God hates division. Sometimes it has to happen because there's something unhealthy and we have to separate from it. But in general, God hates dividing his body. It's like cutting off an arm or a leg. So remember too, fierce wolves, Satan doesn't seek our discomfort. He seeks our destruction. And then lastly, in Acts 21, or actually not quite lastly actually, therefore be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. So that word alert is to be careful less through indolence or remission. So I missed something or I'm lazy, which I can identify with. Destructive calamity might overtake those to whom, with whom I'm interacting. I need to admonish with compassion and self-awareness, but admonish nonetheless. And uh, note the importance of financial accountability. That if I'm, I need to be very careful and to be absolutely transparent to make clear to those around me that I am not in it for the money. Now most pastors would would buy their bank books, demonstrate that they are not in it for the money. Uh, 
but we as teachers need to make sure that, that we are free of that as well. I'm not going to read all of this passage in Acts 20, but it's about Agabus. You may remember Agabus, or you may not. Uh, so he, he uh, wraps this, takes Paul's belt, wraps it around himself and says that this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. And the, the group there says, Paul, don't go. You can't go. He says, I'm ready to die. And we've talked about that before. I'm ready to anything to follow the course that God has given me. And my applications from that, my observations from that, is God's will can be painful, but it doesn't make it not God's will. The fact that something may have, from a human standpoint, very hard consequences doesn't mean it's not God's will. Now, sometimes we in the body of Christ do hard things because they're hard things, because it feels good, feels right to do hard things. Well, there's no virtue, and despite what people, what rangers think, there's no virtue in feeling bad for the sake of feeling bad, of being cold and wet and dirty just so I can say I did it. That, really? Does that make much sense? Nah. It's one of the reasons I decided to be a submariner. Four hots in a cot, you know, a lot better than sitting there in the mud. And then the, the second comment is of the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple. Uh, and when we came to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Note the contrast between Paul's first reception by the church back years before, decades before, and his current reception by the church when they received him gladly. Okay, your questions? So Paul lived a carefully and prayerfully examined and disciplined life to display Christ to advantage and to provide a good example to believers and unbelievers. How often do I examine my life in thought and prayer? If you have any questions about how to do that in a sort of disciplined way, see any of the pastors, a teacher, or a men your mentor. And in what areas might I be a poor example to believers or unbelievers? And what might God want me to do about that?